My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's Sustainability Editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Do you mind if I move the microphone? I just, I need to lounge. <laughs> Devotion, darling. I think as humans, we are major forces to be also reckoned with. And I think creativity always flourishes when there is any type of crisis. That's been the absolute pleasure, is watching talented people who have skills far and beyond mine come together and work collectively. Einstein always said, nature has all the answers. Just look to nature, it has all the answers. Just because I happened to be able to source them easiest, I guess, I was buying original wool jackets from the 1950s. I was buying them at Portobello Market. And a one man's rubbish is another man's gold. For me, it was about age. It was about the attitude of people. And it's about how they're wearing the clothes, why they're wearing the clothes, and capturing a bit of their wisdom and empowering people to look at aging differently. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. <laughs> Hello, everybody. I'm recording this in the like 20 second window before I have to jump in a cab and go to the airport to go to Milan for Fashion Week. I can't wait to share with you on social media what I find there. I'm going to see the Vogue Talents event, which is all about sustainable designers. And I'm going to the Eco Age Green Carpet Awards, Livia Firth's event for the sustainable fashion world. Can't wait. This week on the podcast, we have a brilliant guest for you. Sometimes it can feel like sustainable fashion is this new thing because suddenly everyone's talking about it, right? And that's good, that it's a hot issue, that it's gaining traction. That's what we want. But it's also good to remember that some people, many of whom have been on this podcast, started engaging in the space years ago. I'm talking about the likes of Safia Mini, Fashion Revolutions, Sarah Ditty, Ava Cruz from the Copenhagen Fashion Summit and designers like Christopher Rayburn. And this week's guest, proper pioneer person, Tamsin Lejeune. Tongue twister, try saying that drunk. Tamsin founded the Ethical Fashion Forum, a London-based industry body for sustainable fashion, back in 2006. And this was the team behind Source. I don't know if you know about that. It was one of the first resources that listed sustainable suppliers, contacts, uh, fabric mills, all these leads that can be really hard to find, particularly for smaller designers and brands. In the UK, it was Tamsin and her team who were running the sustainable fashion panel discussions and, and really trying to bring the fledgling ethical fashion community together. Today, they've got a new project. It's called Common Objective. And it's basically like sustainable fashion matchmaking. Think a targeted LinkedIn or <laughs> Tinder without the romance. It's a really good idea. And you're going to hear all about it from Tamsin. But this interview is also about so much more. Starting with what is going on with fast fashion? Why is the model broken? And what can we do about it? We talk about that awkward balance between the big fast fashion companies launching special eco collections while still making most of their stuff in the same old way. And we talk about how we might completely rethink it all, reinvent the system. 
We do get into the magic powers of fashion access over ownership, which I love, and also talk about the opportunities for the next generation of fashion designers. We recorded this interview in Tamsin's HQ in London, and it was really good fun. I could talk to Tamsin all day. I'm part of the Common Objective family, and we hope that you will join us too. It's free to join in. I think you can pay a bit more to get more access, but you should definitely check it out, and we will share a link in the show notes. This is all about building a positive fashion community. Talking of which, you're mine. Endless love to you all and a giant thank you for your gorgeous messages about my new book, which is out on October the 1st. Gah! I'm not coping. What if everyone hates it? I hope they love it. Oh, God. Writing a book is scary. What else? Um, Yeah, don't forget to hit subscribe for this podcast in iTunes if you haven't already. Happy listening. Hello. Hello. I'm so happy that we're doing this in London. Yes. We are in your office, which is actually in the thick of Oxford Circus. You can hear things probably, you can hear a bit of traffic, but it's it's quite fab to be working right in the middle of central London. Yes. Who does that? Yeah. I mean, after years of working in East London, we're right at the heart of fashion. Yeah. <laughs> now, talking about the heart of fashion or perhaps the fashion debate, I want to start with a big question. Is fashion too fast? The answer is yes. It has been getting faster and faster for 30 years or so. And and I think the speed of the fashion industry is at the heart of the problems around sustainability. What does that look like in 2018? Because I was reading an interesting piece that you wrote for the Huffington Post, which ticked so many boxes for me in terms of raising issues that we need to be covering. But one of the things that you said was that the way that we define fast fashion in 2018 has changed a bit. So it used to be rush the product from the design room to the shop floor as quick as possible. But now it's slightly more about... Yeah, speed was originally about speed of production, how quickly you can drop new ranges onto the shelves and onto the shop floors. And now it's more about speed of sale. So how quickly can you move product on? And of course, that translates into how quickly people also discard garments to fit more into their wardrobes. I don't love to point fingers at brands, but I just think for context, I'm going to say what I just did I went into Topshop because it's about two steps away from your office and it was festival season so it was full of the junkiest stuff that I've seen in there for a long time with a load of plastic balloons on the ceiling and a load of plastic clothes on the floor and everything was discounted 12 pounds now 10 pounds now 15 pounds and I thought when we talk about sustainability I think we can be in an echo chamber where we're talking to people who understand the world in the way that we do and when we think things are changing not changing in Topshop. Yeah, we, we talk sometimes about being in a bubble. So we, we live in a bubble. I've operated in a bubble for, for 12 years, and it's a nice bubble to be in, but it's quite a small one. And I think it's really important to recognise that this movement we're seeing feels like a movement from the inside, feels like a lot's happening, but is that really changing the impact of the industry on the people, on the ground and on, on the environment? Well, is it? I mean, after 12 years? I have seen things change. The most exciting change I've seen is in education and in the new generation of graduates and designers and entrepreneurs, not just starting their own brands, but going into big business and changing the way things work. and Completely different attitudes. Yeah, and really, even quite junior buyers and operators can make a difference. When it comes to how that translates to how the fashion industry impacts the environment, 
unfortunately, we're going backwards. Because we're producing more. We're producing more. And the debate in many industry forums, in fact, all industry forums, is very much focused around the quality issue. So the concept of how sustainable the fabrics are, how sustainable and efficient the processes are, how you can reduce the water associated with a particular product, and businesses will report on their impacts in a percentage term. So they'll say, we've reduced water by this much percentage, or we have started to integrate 30% of sustainable fabrics, which sounds good, but it's meaningless out of the context of how much volume is being created. And if you create three times as much, well, a 30, even a 30% change has no impact whatsoever. And one of the most important impacts I think we're, we're seeing that is changing the paradigm of how the fashion industry impacts the world in which we live in is, is plastic pollution. So last year, a report came out which transformed the way we need to think about producing fashion. Ellen MacArthur. Yes, but also a report on microfibers by Orb Media. Oh, I saw it, which basically said that, and I often get this stat wrong because it's different in different countries, yes. 93%? 93% overall in the world of, of water, water tested everywhere, in the mountains of Nepal, in Ethiopia, in the Trump Tower. 83% of all water is contaminated by microfibers, plastic microfibers, with probably the number one cause being billions of clothes being washed in washing machines every day. Some of it was paint and tyre dust. Yes. But microfibers was the leading cause, was it? Yes, it's thought to be the number one cause. There isn't clear, I mean, this is quite new know. research, um, but the, the issue is that that then goes into water treatment plants and, and the sludge that comes out of those is then put on our fields. So it's not only going into our water system, it's going on our food. And uh, it was 94% in the US, actually. <laughs> so it, it accumulates around consumption of clothing and washing of clothing. And that's not even addressing the social impacts. Right. And of course, they're completely connected. I mean, the social impacts of us all drinking plastic are incredible. But what this does, the reason why I think this is both shocking and potentially inspiring, and I am the eternal optimist, so you've got to look for opportunities and everything. But one of the challenges we faced with fashion over the years is that it's not taken seriously. It's seen as frivolous. It's seen as not being a meaningful industry to address change in. Only recently it's been taken seriously in the UN development goals. And I think what this does is it, it places it firmly on the agenda that if our entire world's population, all animals, all plants, all humans are now consuming plastic, that's going to have a considerable impact on public health. Mm. And we need to change that. We need, we need to consider regulations. What, what it does also is it changes the paradigm around fast fashion, around the way we operate, because... 68% of fashion now produced is is made on the base of polyester. I know this. So, I actually didn't know that stat, but I know yeah. that it's the majority. I mean, we always talk about, I always talk, I'm that person who does what you were saying before, which is focus on let's invest in, you know, buy less but choose well. Let's invest in durable garments that are designed with longevity in mind, that are beautiful, that can have second and third lives. Let's embrace natural fibres. 
lovely, but that's not what we're doing because 68% is polyester and all the rest of that stuff I saw in Topshop is not made from natural fibres. So the beautiful ideas that we have for our fashion future, we need them, but they're a long way off from being put into place, aren't they? They are, and there's this irony that we we have been persuaded by a machine, a, a huge marketing machine to believe that we want to wear plastic. Whoever wants to wear plastic, it's unpleasant to wear. Uh, yes, it's cheap, but especially sportswear. So you put forward the argument that we need to go more natural. What, and very often you'll get a response, well, what about sportswear? How, how do we manage with, with sportswear if we're going to use less plastic? No stretch in the natural why, why would you? Why would you want sweaty. to wear plastic when you're doing sports? Did you see that story on the British Vogue website about wearing plastic shoes? No. Ew. Because I've been noticing that there are all these PVC shoes on the runway, you know, uh, PVC boots at yeah, Chanel. Yeah. And Vogue addressed it and ran a picture of a sweaty foot with a lot of oh, condensation inside nasty. the shoe and said, this stuff breeds fungi. You know, it's not nice. I mean, to have your feet enclosed in unbreathable plastic shoes is probably pretty disgusting. But actually, clothes do the same. Yeah, and it shows you the strength of this marketing machine that, you know, we, we as a consuming society have been encouraged to believe that what we need and want is lots of cheap clothes made of plastic. For smaller brands or independent designers who have sustainability really in their hearts, and that's why they do what they do, how do they then interact with the big giants saying, look at our marvellous green goals, look at all the work we're doing in CSR? How do we take it seriously when it comes from the big end of town and how do we join those two worlds together and, you know, what's the way forward? It's so important we do create a space for debate where, where it can happen and become less of a standoff mm-hmm. because at the moment it really is two sides lining up against each other. And this is particularly pertinent where there's been a raft of initiatives by big brands so they brought out sustainable collections and often subsidised those so that they're much lower cost than they actually cost to produce, which makes it challenging for smaller businesses that have put their blood, sweat and tears into producing collections that are stunning, that change lives and that cost the real the true cost, cost. The true cost. And I know and work with a lot of the individuals who work within these big businesses and without exception, they're dedicated they're committed, they want to change things and, and they perhaps have the hardest job of, within the industry, the entrepreneurs working within big businesses who, whose job it is to move the direction of a juggernaut, to work against targets that are set around commerciality and try to integrate sustainability. So, so there is, there's good either side, there's positivity either side. The problem is that by discounting these sustainable collections, it devalues the whole concept of sustainability. It's, it's saying to consumers again that you, you can buy fashion at an unrealistic price. Do you know that while I can absolutely see that that's true, I haven't considered it before. I've written about sustainable collections from big brands, but there's no transparency around cost. And as a result... I failed because I didn't ask the question. But actually, I didn't really consider that. What I think is, okay, it's good that you're pouring resources into trying to test these fabrics. It's good that you're moving towards this. We hear the argument, they trickle down into the broader collections. But there isn't transparency on cost. They don't say, we subsidise this to bring it to you at a cheap price because you're used to paying not very much. Mm. Yeah, and often it comes from a good place. Mm. So they want these collections to do well. 
they don't want them to bomb. <laughs> so alongside the other product, they want to price it the same, but it doesn't cost the same. Actually, some of H&M Conscious is expensive. Some of those dresses are expensive. Yeah, and they, and they do have premium collections across the board as well. So, but yes, it's, it's a little more... But there was one in Zara. I remember one in Zara. Mm. No more expensive. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and having spoken to those who are behind the collections, I know that they've lost money on those. And that's the other side to it. If, if it's a loss leader for the fast fashion, it's never going to become more than a capsule. Mm. And it is a tiny proportion of the f- total production. In fact, you're lucky if you can get a piece of those collections. They're sold out within... Minutes. And only in certain stores. Yeah. And lots yeah. of advertising. So there has to be a business model that makes sense, which means thinking more strategically about the overall business model. And there are exciting ways that this can be done. It doesn't have to be a case of fast fashion is not possible. We need to, all fashion needs to be produced at a higher cost. And the industry operates the way it operates. We need to find creative solutions that address that challenge. And, and there are options. What are some of those options? So if you were to look at a leasing model, we've seen quite effective, this happening really effectively with um, sites like Rent the Runway, thinking creatively, why should not H&M start? They could start small, it wouldn't need to be a huge investment, but they could start with a collection that is rented from their stores. The advantage of this is that it creates change on several counts. Mm. First of all, it addresses this desire that we all have to have something new. I still have that so, desire. Yeah, it's in, inherent, I think. And, mm. and to have something affordable and new, it feels good to wear something new. If you were to have a leasing model, you could do that, but you could get something so much more beautiful for the same price. And as you're only going to wear it once to that wedding or on Instagram or to that one party, Instead because let's face it, it out, that's still what people are doing, even if the Duchess of Cambridge wears that McQueen dress four times. Someone said on Instagram when I was praising her for wearing that at the wedding someone said she's not wearing it for the fourth time she's had it remade for the fourth time and I said please can you tell me where you get that information because if it's true I'd be fascinated she didn't have any information I need to check (laughs) but it's possible I'm gonna ring up McQueen and ask absolutely well we've been very pleased by the support from the royal family for sustainable fashion you know what they are yeah I like I I think she she's not gonna have that dress made again four times why would you do that (laughs) maybe (laughs) But the, the other exciting thing about the, the leasing model is that from a production perspective, producing fast fashion, lots of product that's homogenous, not very, not very different, lots of the same thing many, many times also over. Also lots of wastage. Lots we of know wastage. they're carrying stock they can't sell as per the now £12. Yes. And for those people who are sitting in a supply chain, how interesting is it to do the same pocket corner of a pair of jeans 200 times a day when you could be instead producing something creative? The fashion is creative. I mean, millions of people go into fashion because they love, they love the concept of it being design-led, of the, it's inspirational. Jobs in fashion don't have to be drudgery. It should be something that, that we can enjoy and that we can uh, admire no matter where you are in the supply chain. If, if you had a leasing model where products were more expensive, produced more carefully. And the other thing is that that would then solve the problem that H&M has with the community of brilliant entrepreneurs and businesses that are pushing the sustainable fashion movement forward and have done for years, but also the new generation from colleges, which is where I see mm. the most change over the last 12 years. 
who are really dedicated to change and producing just incredible product that we don't see on the high street. We do not see it. We're talking about a paradigm shift for the whole system. Yes. And we know system change is hard. We know it's possible because we can do it. We do it every day. We change things every day. But to completely overhaul the fashion system is a big ask. And I worry that there are so many entrenched interests who are making money and getting rich off the way it works now. We've got to find find ways that this model will be lucrative. Yeah. And we need bold leadership, really bold leadership. I mean, if a brand goes out there and places themselves in a leadership position around sustainability, this is the kind of thing they should be Mm -hmm. doing. Mm -hmm. I think that also we need the representatives from the fast fashion sector to seriously take on board the volume issue and not give up in the face of a challenge which may seem beyond what can be changed. Because if we don't address this, the industry will never be sustainable. We can forget that. We can forget achieving our targets if we don't address this elephant in the room. Let's talk about how you work to try to change conversations and affect system change in the long run. Let's talk about what the Ethical Fashion Forum does and how it evolved. Yes, so we began 12 years ago when a group of designers and entrepreneurs sat around a table. How many though, like five? Well, there were 20 founding members. Right. There were three of us initially uh, having a conversation about how we could solve problems. So we were around the, the end of the, around the millennium, there were more and more businesses, entrepreneurs and business owners who were thinking, we can do things differently And yet there are many challenges to doing so, many more than there are now. It was impossible to find sustainable suppliers. Buyers had really negative perceptions around it. There was no understanding or awareness of it. And we felt that by joining forces, we could overcome some of these. So we founded the forum in 2006 with 20 founding members, some of which were small businesses then and have since become more established brands like Howie's. And over the last 12 years, we've done everything we could think possible (laughs) to address the problems that came to us every day. Almost from day one, we had lots of queries coming in about how to source and produce, how to create products that sell. We partnered with the World Fair Trade Organization from pretty early on, so had a network of fair trade suppliers all over the world that we looked to connect with brands. And also share information. The whole point is make this stuff available so it's easy to find out. Yeah, lots of people reinventing the wheel over and over again in their own corner. And one thing that we found people really responded to was the sense of building a community for change. Working in an isolated way is lonely, whether you're in a big retailer or you're, you're in your own brand. So just that sense of collaboration and bring businesses together and and we launched the source which is a platform to solve in answer to all the questions we were getting and that was a sourcing database a network an intelligence database so that businesses and individuals could move from having an idea to turning that into reality always really focused on okay how can we create a practical solution that helps you really achieve change whatever your role is in the industry and actually Sarah Ditti who was on this podcast and we will share a link to her episode about fashion revolution but she worked on the source didn't she Sarah Ditti's played an absolutely fundamental role with the development of both the ethical fashion forum so she was editor-in-chief of source our intelligence platform and then instrumental in the development of the next stage of our work 
with... common objective. Yes. So great. <laughs> We're going to get on to exactly how that operates, but for now, do you want to just sum up what common objective is? Yes. So the concept behind common objective is that we all have one. All businesses have a common objective. They need to generate a financial model that allows them to prosper. And all society has a common objective. We need to maintain a global environment in which we can thrive. Without those two things, neither business nor society can evolve. So the common objective side is about bringing those two values together. And we're also building on everything we've done over the last 12 years. There's two real main elements to the site. First of all, we want it to become a tool or resource that's relevant to anybody in fashion, whether or not they're interested in sustainability. We've recognised that we've had an impact over the years with the Ethical Fashion Forum, but given our name and our URL, we've attracted people who are interested in sustainability already doing it. And that's still the tip of the iceberg. And if we want to change fashion to move sustainability from niche to norm, as you said, to take a whole new strategic approach to how we operate our industry... We need to engage everybody. In fact, we need to engage the first offenders mm. more than anyone yes. because that's where the change exists. So it's taking the word ethical, well, you haven't removed it, but it's not <laughs> using or pushing the word ethical part of that. Well, I think that we need this to be something that is considered as part of business. Not niche. So in our name, CO, CO stands for business, better business. We think all business should be done better. There's no reason why every business in the world should not become a B Corp, a benefit corporation. I think they'd say there was. <laughs> I agree. You believe strongly in the idea that business can be good, a force for good, do good. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yes. Yeah, so we, over the last 50 years, our global environment has changed dramatically from being one which is governed by individual nations who set the rules for how business and society operates, to being one that is governed in a dual way. You live in a country and you're governed by your, your government, but we live in a global society that really has no head. We have no global governance, meaningful global mm. governance, and yet business operates on a global scale. And this is one of the key issues with achieving change because... We need a strategy on a global level. You can't solve the problems in the fashion industry on a national level. And the most progressive governments are doing great things, Scandinavia, for example. But in the end, no fashion business, virtually no fashion business now operates sourcing and producing in one country. It's one of the most global industries in the world. And therefore, we need a global system. And I think there are two ways to, to address that. One is through business joining, collaborating, working better, us creating incentives. And that's what Common Objective is mm. about. It needs to be beyond a voluntary initiative. It needs to go beyond something you do just because you want to do it, um, to being something that is incentivized. And what the Common Objective platform does is, first of all, it makes it very easy to find what you need. So it's a bit like a match.com. You can find the information, the resources in minutes faster than anywhere else that you need to build a business whether mm. you're interested in sustainability or not but then the site operates like a google so you get a higher ranking the more sustainable your business is therefore you rise to the top and the idea behind that is that we incentivize and create a commercial opportunity associated with operating sustainably and i think if we can create an environment in which businesses around the world are seeing the opportunity to operate sustainably rather than fearing the risk of not 
Yes, only. <laughs> but both, I Still think. a bit of that. <laughs> both. And then beyond that, we need to work together to find a way of achieving global governance. That's a bigger I know. consideration. I mean, one of the big problems with these, with finding a pathway to change on this kind of scale is how overwhelming the issues are. I mean, you say we're talking about changing whole systems or when we say okay what we need to do is make fashion circular which is what I've been thinking recently yeah great imagine but it's so big isn't it I mean everyone's talking about it but who's doing it beyond okay let's have some take back schemes for your old clothes and then we're not really sure how to translate those old clothes into new fiber yet but we'll get there you know it's hard and big isn't it it feels big it feels big and this also is why I'm the elephant in the room needs to be raised considerately because if it's raised in a way that people walk away feeling disempowered as though the problem's too big for them to tackle, mm. then we're not moving anywhere. But I think the key is step by step. So there's each of us holding the responsibility, each of us, and it's far way beyond consumerism. This is partly why the fashion revolution movement is so exciting. We've been told for years your power is in, in your buying. We're global citizens. Our power is far beyond what we buy. It's how we operate, how we operate within our businesses, within our roles in society, within our roles in work. If each person were to take responsibility, full responsibility in their own individual role, we've seen how that changes things. And people in quite junior roles in in fashion businesses, in some of the biggest fashion businesses on the high street, I've seen them change things Mm. just by persevering and being committed. And we need the creative minds because we need innovative solutions. So things like the leasing model, that done on a small scale could become the change. And also creative currency. So actually valuing creativity and innovation and ideas, not just bottom line profits. Obviously, we have to look at bottom line profits, but also just recalibrating, again, huge task, but recalibrating what success looks like, because success can be in a different form of currency than just cash. Yes. What I'd love to see more is the debate being a bit more balanced. In some of these large industry forums, we're hearing from the big businesses and and the large suppliers, partly because you need to pay to get into that room. It costs a lot of money. You're not hearing from the small producers. You're not hearing from the the small... Or the makers or the... This isn't that there isn't innovation in big business. There, There is, but the freedom of small business allows for the creativity of new ideas and and it allows for concepts to be nurtured that aren't possible in big business. Tim O'Rissonen, who is from Parsons and who is another person who is a wonderful interviewee on this podcast in series one, he introduced me to the idea of trickle out or spreading out change. So he says we can have just the same amount of change by loads of small players fascinating spreading change outward not just from the giant ones changing from the top down or from a lot of agitation from the street up and I think that we tend to ignore those smaller names not ignore but I think you're right that in these forums we tend not to invite those people to the table because we think well you're too small what are you going to do but in fact all together they're doing more for sure I mean I meet hundreds of smaller entrepreneurs smaller designers makers who are doing amazing work in this space completely and they've completely reinvented their systems their voices need to be heard Mm. yeah talking about change making where does it come from in you I'd love to know about your background and your values yes so I grew up in Africa my parents have I've had a protest I guess has been in my DNA from as 
when I was as young as I can remember, we, we were on marches. My parents are quite involved with the anti-nuclear movement, or they were when I was growing up. So, so my childhood was spent on marches. And when Whereabouts? Not, so that was in Scotland. I split my upbringing between Scotland and Africa. Which bit of Africa? Born in Zambia and grew up in Zimbabwe. And it was a fascinating time. It was just after independence when a lot of professionals were being invited out to all over Africa. In fact, both my sets of aunts and uncles went out too. The whole concept was it was part of the Commonwealth of creating a great start for countries that had democracy. By uh, So my parents were doctors and they went out there and, and trained and worked with communities. And it was an incredible inspiring experience because there was so much joy and so much optimism there but I also I think that is where I began to get interested in fashion and the fashion in Zambia for example that I experienced as a very young girl was street markets full of colorful fabrics being sold and from Scotland just the light (laughs) would be revelationary oh my goodness and the the ultimate sustainability in fashion I suppose you go to the market you buy your fabric you either make it yourself or you employ a seamstress to make something that is entirely unique to you and a a lot of that has inspired my approach to fashion I then spent uh, quite a formative year at the age of 18 in in Honduras did Um, you yes wow doing what Honduras and Guatemala teaching English did you or officially that was what I was teaching but because it was an English school so they bring out volunteers to teach you're put in whatever lesson they need a teacher in so I ended up teaching everything from from basketball I'm quite tall (laughs) and in Honduras in Honduras the, the average height is a lot lower than than me I was taller than any of the men in the school so they immediately looked at me and said you're going to be great at basketball. We'll put you on heading up the basketball team. And of course, I'd never played basketball in my life. Playing, I was 18, 17-year-old boys. (laughs) They didn't keep me on. (laughs) No talent there, just the tall. (laughs) But yeah, it was a formative experience, partly because it opened my eyes to the beauty of craft work. If, If you're familiar with the range of skills and traditions in Guatemala for example and the contrast between Guatemala and Honduras so Guatemala has kept its traditions stunning colorful hand embroidered absolutely beautiful products that you don't see on the high streets you don't see them everywhere and I was astounded by this and came back with an enormous suitcase three suitcases full of all these beautiful garments which were being sold for for nothing even though the amount of work that goes into them is incredible and found that I couldn't wear them on the streets of London. They just weren't designed in a way. And so I had them redesigned. There was a company, those of you who have been in the sustainable fashion world may know of it, Junkie Styling. Oh, yeah. One of the origins of recycling and upcycling in London, incredibly talented couple of designers who who remade many of my pieces from Guatemala, and I wear them today. Do you? And get comments on them. But I think what it brought home to me was that there's several opportunities here. One, there's these beautiful products that that could change lives in Guatemala because as one of the poorest countries in the world, these people needed a market for their products. And the skills are there. The skills are there. What was missing was the design input. And yet thousands of incredibly talented creative designers emerging from 
UK fashion colleges every year at a loss with what to do with their skills, being disillusioned, going into big brands, not being able to use their skills in that way. So, so that was what created the, the concept, I guess, of the Ethical Fashion Forum. And one of our first projects was called Design for Life Ghana, where we, part, we were approached by a, a small NGO in, in Ghana who had come across a challenge. Women in Progress was a group of women working and producing garments using traditional batik techniques mm. in Ghana and selling very well with their children's wear range, doing very well selling in the US and the UK, but struggling to break into the market for women's wear. And they said, can you help solve this problem? Because it's preventing us being able to build and grow this model. So we looked at it and we put together a competition and we recognized the need. we needed the right heads, the right experience around the table. What's missing? It was, wasn't just the textile design. So the textile design was quite traditional, batik techniques. Women in the streets of London and New York just don't really want to wear them exactly that way. And, and the second was the shape of the designs. They weren't mm. really the way you know, they were dated back to yeah. when somebody came up with an idea 20 years ago. Yeah. So we started a competition. We involved textile designers. We involved several fashion colleges. We put together teams of textile and fashion designers. And we also thought this needs to have a market. So we engaged with Topshop. We brought one of their buyers on. The, Did you? Yeah, and this was a junior buyer at the time Fair. who just happened to be interested in this topic. She went out with the winners of the competition to Ghana. Topshop was quite instrumental in deciding which design teams won because they knew which were going to sell. They spent time working with the women in, in the group. New techniques came out of that collaboration. The resulting collections sold out three seasons in a row. Great. The ultimate impact was that the women of Women in Progress, their wages were raised tenfold. They were able to send their kids to school. This little catalyst of bringing those people together at that time. And we had a minute budget for this. I mean, we did this as a labor of love. But it transformed things in the long term. And so the concept with Common Objective is that if we can catalyze these changes... Amongst thousands and connect of people designers could, and individuals, mm. connecting people with common objectives to build great businesses that change the world, we can transform the way the fashion industry operates. You can. You are. I mean, it's interesting as well, the idea that the capacity for ingenuity that humans have is vast. And most people want to do the right thing. I mean, you never meet anyone who says, I'd like to bugger up the environment <laughs> and pay people poverty wages, do you? But people just need to have more tools in order to get together and try and do things in a better way, don't they? It's a structure that prevents them. And it's an interesting phenomenon we've seen over the last few years, which we refer to as the brain drain, where we hold a lot of events in London and elsewhere in partnership with other organisations. And we've had an increasing number of individuals coming from large corporates to our events, which was fairly new because we tended, our main audience was people who were operating in fashion running businesses or setting up businesses. But when we looked at this more closely and spoke to them, we recognised that they weren't coming necessarily on official capacity on behalf of their business, Curious. which was rather disappointing because we thought, oh, finally, we're getting through to the corporates. They were coming on their own back, so out of hours under personal emails. And part of the reason for this is that they were disillusioned. So they're fed up with working in a corporate environment where they feel they cannot drive change. Some of the best, most creative minds, the most initiative is leaving. It's the brain drain. It's leaving the corporates to do something different. And 
this is where big business needs to sit up and take note because especially with millennials and and you know, a whole generation who want meaning in their work they want to be given the freedom to do something they're proud of and if that's not happening within big business it's going to happen as a brain drain mm. outside of big business it's an opportunity, isn't it? Again, we're talking about opportunity because I know that you said it before, actually. <laughs> I, one of your colleagues described you as an eternal optimist who will turn any challenge into an opportunity. I love this. Do you think that's right? I've got into trouble for my optimism in the past. I think, yes, it probably comes from, from my upbringing and, and parents. But it if we don't have a goal to change things, what's the point? You don't get things done just by whinging. You've got to believe you can do stuff. Otherwise, you just stay at home talking and then maybe buy some crap online. But we talked about the bubble earlier. And I feel extremely fortunate to have lived in a bubble that every morning I wake up and look at my emails and I see incredible people doing incredible things and, and surrounded by optimists. Because those who get up and become an entrepreneur or an entrepreneur stand out there, put their head about the parapet and focus on what they can do within the world. They're optimists. Yes. So being yeah. surrounded by optimists helps. Do you have two daughters? Yes. Do you instill this in them? I try. And I do see now, my elder daughter is, is 11. So I already see the impact of the fashion industry and the way it operates on, on the way she is and the way she life challenges her and her choices. But that's a whole other side to fast fashion mm. and the impact of fashion on the way we perceive ourselves and our body image Okay, let's just finish up by talking a bit more about Common Objective because it's just launched. We talked about how it's a bit of a matchmaking opportunity, which I like the idea that it can hook up like-minded people through this platform. But let's talk about the three goals that you have. And in particular, what are they? So the first one is about it being a tool. The second one, a tool for change. The second one is about this matchmaking thing. But the last one about rewarding sustainability, I want to talk about that. Rewarding sustainability, yes. So moving sustainability from being a cost to an opportunity for too long, it's been something that's seen as difficult, challenging. Why should the businesses that are pushing the boundaries have to pay extra for that rather than seeing the advantage of it? So the way Common Objective works, it's free to join. It's a bit like a LinkedIn for a sustainable fashion, but much more than that. Um, so you can join, create a profile, create an individual profile. You can set up a bit, profile for your business. All of this is free. You can upgrade for more if you want to. But as you sign up, there's a process that takes about five minutes, two to five minutes, where you select. It's quite a gamified process. You select images which build a picture around what I've it is. It what it is you so what you're interested interested in artisanal skills or where you might be interested in sourcing from what your role is in the industry whether you work for a retail whether you're you're setting up a new business and that way the site builds a picture around you and what you're interested in and what your objectives are and therefore it can match you so you land on your dashboard and you're matched with information resources training and we work with a lot of other bodies who are not interested in reinventing the wheel there's quite a lot of information out there it's just not necessarily presented in the right way fashion people are busy you don't have time to read long reports so we summarize and create short bite-sized information pieces for you and also wading through the volumes of information we're trying to create it for you so you get exactly what you need so if you had said for example i'm interested in sourcing cotton from turkey you might be matched with 
a report on the opportunities for the market for cotton, which would also represent the opportunities around sustainability, might be presented with a small tool which helps you to see the alternatives, the most sustainable alternatives, and you might have a five-minute training on sourcing from Turkey. But you'd also be matched with individuals. So every trade happens between people. It's about building relationships, so people first. You're matched with people, but they'll be matched on the basis of which companies they're linked to. So you might be linked with the, the right person you need to connect with from a Turkish cotton supplier. And then you're also matched with businesses and organisations that are relevant to your preferences. But up top, so the ones that come up first in your feed are those that are more sustainable than others. We have a weighting system which ah. we developed in collaboration with others, um, which is constantly in development, but quite a sophisticated algorithm that, that defines both what you're matched with in terms of your needs and what you're looking for and what you're trying to sell or promote, and also your most sustainable option. This obviously makes a lot of sense when coming out of the source in terms of being able to access this stuff, which some people find absolutely hidden and impossible to locate. I mean, the question I'm asked most often, particularly by smaller brands and young designers, is where and how? Yes. How can I find that fabric, especially students? And often with students, the answer is you can't because <laughs> it's not available in those quantities. But it's actually, information is gold, isn't it? And not being able to find those contexts is super frustrating. So this is excellent. I mean, I think it's part of the whole share, new vision of how we can share the share economy, share resources, share information. That's the future, isn't it? And it's finding that needle in the haystack. So you might think, and we know we get lots of requests from students asking for small quantities, you might think that's difficult, but it, there are if you know brilliant matches. Right. So going back to the Ghana model, you know, if you ma- that only worked because we matched entrepreneurs with a small production. It wouldn't work if you matched Topshop with a small production unit. But if you're looking for small quantities, well, there are incredible fair trade suppliers producing small quantities that can't do large quantities, that want to work with create mm. a need to work and will mm. benefit enormously through connecting with creative designers. So... In your matching preferences, you can reference how much you're looking for, the quantities you're looking for. And the same, we do that with the businesses. So so in a diverse ecosystem where we have lots of different and sorts globally. of people looking for different things, it's really about matching the needles in the haystack. Tamsin, if you might look into a crystal ball, where would you see fashion in the short term and the long term? I'm an optimist. In 10 years, I see a transformation of our high streets from a buy model to a leasing model. I think we could be having wonderful pieces in our wardrobe, far more exciting than what we see now. And we'd see them on the street too. We'd move away from walking down the high street and seeing everyone wearing the same homogenous stuff produced low cost. And we'd see them wearing exciting, inspiring fashion. Could I get my Christopher Kane blouse? I fell so in love with it. It was about a hundred million pounds. I couldn't even touch it. It was so expensive. The the reason this is exciting is that for creative designers, it's the business model that works for them too. So in a competing with a fast fashion model is very difficult. But if your products are being sold through that, leased through that fast fashion machine, then it's a win-win. That's the end. (laughs) Thank you. Oh, thank you. Oh, it's getting hard. My parents feel that I'm defending you. We told them all that they are wrong. Because I love you. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. 
you can get in touch there and I really hope you will I'd love to hear from you and you can also find links to my social media and finally if you're enjoying the show please head over to iTunes and subscribe you know what they say first in best dressed subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis so I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion the better Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you where, okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends all feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you. Because I love you, because I love you, because I love you, because I love you.